Hello and welcome to the Experiential Education Podcast. This week, I'm talking with Adrian Deeks, Program Manager for Theatre and Performance for Schools at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. Adrian has worked at the V&A for 16 years, 10 of those as the formal education manager at the Theatre Museum. Prior to this, he was head of department at the Sandon School in Chelmsford, Essex, and taught drama, English, and media for nine years. Adrian has a PGCE in drama and contextual studies from the University of Reading, and a BA honours degree in theatre arts from the University of Leeds. The v Museum is one of my most favourite museums in the world. It has a remarkable collection of historic and contemporary artefacts covering well over one and a half thousand years of life in England, Europe, Asia and the Middle East. Everything from an amazing medieval collection to the outrageous outfits from iconic performances like Adam and the Ants and our very own Dame Edna Everidge. It even has the original iconic tongue logo design of the Rolling Stones. I really enjoyed the opportunity to go back there and gain an insight into some of the great educational programs they're running at the museum. Today we're talking with Adrian Deeks, who is the program manager for theatre and performance for the for schools at the Victoria and Albert Museum in London. Thanks for talking with us today. You're very welcome. Could you give us a little bit of a background of the work you've done and what led you here to the V&A? Okay, well I originally trained as a performer, so it was an acting kind of area I was looking into, and then I became a drama teacher, and I was head of drama department in various schools for about nine years, and then kind of felt I'd gone as far as I could in terms of that, because you tend to be in quite a small department and you go quite high up quite quickly and then thought, oh, I'll do something else. And my um, partner at the time said, oh, there's a job going at the Theatre Museum as Education Manager. Started that in August 2001, and I'm still here. So um, yeah, that became a full-time job, basically. And what does, that, what does that entail? So what does your work really entail here at the museum? It's programming events, activities, workshops, performances for schools. Uh, mainly secondary because that's my, my, my training is in secondary 11 to 18 year olds but also primary as well but it's performances by um, theatres it's workshops on set design costume design Shakespeare theatre galleries that are here and actually making use of the the galleries that are in the museum as inspiration for performance so that, that's the real core of it the museum of, is basically the museum of art design and performance what would one of those workshops look like? Say if you've got a high school group coming in, yeah. what would you do? I, I would assume that they are drama students already. They do have a bit of a background. Yeah, mainly. They're mainly drama students. They're also increasingly English students um, who study set text because we have something called the National Video Archive of Performance, which is live recordings of shows which we show on site. But typically it's a very, very hands-on experience and we're, we're very kind of proud of the fact that when they come to the museum, they're working with professional actors, professional designers, professional directors, who will take them through a practical workshop. Take them, for example, if they're doing a set design workshop, we have theatre galleries with set model boxes or costume designs. So it's very much about the professionals saying, this is what I do, this is how I get inspiration from what's in the museum, this is what you can do. Some of the items that are on display, there, there is everything from the, the dioramas of a set, so sort of the, the drafting, 
Does that happen in theatrical performance? Will they do that in preparation for each performance? Do a sort of diorama of what it's going to look like before they build it? If they're a set designer, yes, set designers in this country tend to be the costume designers as well. They, they are the design team in performance, but it's still, they, they will very often still make a 3D model. Obviously there's, there's CAD, there's computer-aided design, but I still think designers, where they can, very much like to make a 3D model. So it, I think it's worth remembering when you think about those models, none of them are made to be in a museum. They are, if you like, they're working documents. They're, they're kind of documents that say to a director and the guys backstage, this is how I want it to look. Can you make it 25 times bigger? <laughs> but it's not a kind of, it's not specially made to be in a museum. So I think the theatre and performance objects are quite unique because they're, they're quite different from other museum objects. Yeah, because they, they do look a little bit rough and ready. And, exactly. and they're, they're not polished yeah. pieces, yeah. but they're really, I think they give you a sense of, depth of what's going on in a creative yeah. mind. Yeah, and again, as I say, they're, they're, they generally don't last. They are quite rare. They get recycled, they get trodden on, they get cigarette ash. They, <laughs> they are working documents, but you're right. It's, it's the equivalent of seeing a Shakespeare play with Shakespeare's kind of writing on it and crossing out. You yeah. know, you're, you're seeing a 3D example of the design process, basically. Yeah, and it is rough and ready, but it's, it's designed to get to the next stage, which mm. is the realisation. Anyway, so when you look at many of our costume um, books as well, they look kind of quite rough and they're, they're not finished works of art. They're just there to say to the person making it, it, it feels like this. Does that make theatre and performance a little bit more accessible to students when they can see, you can see the polished product and, and you have some fantastic outfits yeah, yeah. that are on display here. Mm -hmm. So that's the polished product. But for students who they're trying to see, well, this is this is the goal up here. How do I get there? Does it make it a little bit more accessible? I think it does. I think it does. I think you're right. And I think when I mean certainly our workshop leaders for for the costume design workshops, they're very good at saying to students, yes, you know, drawing is an important skill, but actually. We can use collage, we can use cutout, we can use shapes. It, it's not about producing a finished piece of art, it's a working document. And mm. I think you're right, I think, you know, <laughs> you can look at the models and some of them you can say, actually, I could probably do that with a bit of blue tack and a bit of sellotape, I could make that. <laughs> and that's not the same as looking at the Statue of David, which we have a copy of here. I mean, that, that's yeah. kind of an amazing finished work of art, but you're right, this is kind of a few steps back from that. And I think students can go, Oh, okay, I could do that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I think you're right. Mm -hmm. I noticed on your website you've got a Shakespeare in a suitcase program. What, what is that all about? Is it Shakespeare in a suitcase? Because <laughs> given the amount of historic artifacts from the Middle Ages and, and yeah. Renaissance, yeah. it could be him in there, or it is, is it something well, else? Uh, for a start, I should admit, it's a title I stole from a colleague that she, she ran this years ago. I thought, that's a great title, I'm going to steal that because it's great. <laughs> Basically, the idea is students come to V&A, they are taken on a tour of the V&A, and they're, they're shown the things that connect to it. Basically, Shakespeare is represented in virtually every part of the museum, which people may not realise, but he's in ceramics, he's in painting, he's in jewellery, he's in theatre performance, he's everywhere kind of hidden around. So we kind of tease him out, as it were. And then we have this wonderful um, gallery called the Medieval and Renaissance Gallery. Mm. So it's, a, it's basically a wonderful set, performance space. So the idea is students um, will kind of be inspired, go away, work on Shakespeare in any, in any way they want to. It might be inspired by a line, it might be a story, it might be the entire text, it might be bits. 
they basically produce their own response to Shakespeare. Where the cunningly titled Shakespeare in a Suitcase comes from is they then come back in April, as close as we can get to Shakespeare's birthday, 23rd of April, and they perform in the galleries surrounded by Renaissance material. They can use whatever props they like, but they must fit in a standard family-sized suitcase. Now, this, this is for two reasons. It's actually quite a clever way of getting over the fact that we can't have loads of set and lights and things coming in, because yeah. that's going to not work <laughs> in the museum. But it also gives them that sort of quite tight restraint. And as you probably know, artists tend to work quite well when they've got kind of constraints. If you mm. just say you've got a billion pound budget, it's kind of too much. If you say you've got two sticks and a chair, it sort of makes you kind of really focus on what you can do with that. So they come up with some really creative things because they can't get much in a suitcase. But you can get a projector in there nowadays, you can get you know, iPhones and things, so it's, it's constrained, but it's also big enough, and it's quite a nice title. Yeah, that's, it's really cool, <laughs> I like it. It grabs people's attention. Yeah. 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 So what are some examples of some of the things that have been brought out of the suitcase by the students? Well, again, sometimes they're quite simple things. It's very kind of creative in terms of, it might just be a stick. But that stick can become a wand, it can become part of a set, it can become a bit of a house. It, it's your imagination, basically. So yeah, it's not necessarily about using Shakespeare's objects, because you know, we'd love to get the first folio, because we've got three at the v &A. We're quite we're quite kind of cheeky. We haven't got one or two, we've got a spare <laughs> for that one. Um, but unfortunately, you can't kind of grab it out the case. No. Um, so, But those kind of things really kind of inspire them, I think. Yeah. Not sure that answered your question, actually. but. Um, yeah. <laughs> well, did anything sort of grab you? Has, has something ever sort of grabbed you and gone, wow, that is, that is a really cool, unique way of doing something? I don't know whether that Shakespeare in Suitcase is one of the things that, that, I've, that we do. Um, there are other things. We did a project on Peter Brook, who's the director, and we, we basically got his archive. And he's been directing, he's, he's, he's 93 this year, he's still directing, he started directing in 1940-something. Um, and we did six shows with six schools and six theatres in response to his plays. And I think I was really quite inspired by one particular group from the Rose Theatre who just used a simple cart to work, but they actually... I'm sure they must have stolen this because it's such a good idea. <laughs> they must have got it from somewhere. You know, making lots of different objects from two wheels and a piece of wood. It became a cart, it turned into a house, it turned into all these various things quite simply. Um, but again, it kind of comes from that constraint, quite simple things. Yeah, because if you have to work with a tiny amount, as you said, yeah, yeah. you've got to think about it, you've got to put a lot more yeah, depth yeah of thought and also problem solving into how am I yeah. going to present this material. And that, and that to me kind of links in with a kind of increasingly trying to see what are key skills that students need to have for the future is this kind of creative skill, this ability to think on their feet, this ability to make connections, which is not specifically linked to what they're doing when they come here to do, say, a Shakespeare workshop, but I think that's what they're doing. And when they're doing devising workshops, for example, with Complicite Theatre, it's about creating things very, very, in a kind of very loose but very controlled way, if that makes sense. And you know, I kind of think those, those are the skills that students are going to need in the future. You know, we all know that robots are going to take over and there'll be no jobs. <laughs> but actually, that's not true. There will be jobs yeah. that will go, but there are going to be jobs that actually need that kind of creative way of thinking. Creativity is the future. Yeah. Slightly biased, probably, um, but that's, that's kind of what I think. And I think that's what those workshops encourage. 
and that's what we get from the students. I agree with you on that because it is one of those challenges is what are the problem solving skills, what are the skills that are needed for an unknown future? Yeah. Yeah. So how do you build that into your creative workshops? Okay. That's a really interesting one because I think that's, that's one that's constantly having to be, to be thought about because I don't know, again, I don't know how interesting this is to your, to your listeners, but you know, where arts are in the English curriculum at the moment, it, they're in quite a difficult place. They're not having a good time. Drama is being cut in quite a few schools and the arts generally are, are kind of being cut. So I think teachers, exam boards, all of us have to have a think about, okay, what is the value of these subjects? Now, there's so many reports about the economic reason why the arts are important, da 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 da, but I think we've got to go beyond that. And I think it is, do we recognise those skills? Because I'm not convinced that within the curriculum we, we, we kind of do, if that makes sense. Yeah. There's a slightly, slightly wittery, wittery answer. What I'm saying is at the moment, because of the way the curriculum is, we have to kind of sell the workshops along the line of, if you do this, it will help your students get really good results. I think we could go beyond that because it's not just about the curriculum, but where we are at the moment, things for the arts are, are, are quite tricky. So I, I, I see teachers kind of retreating back to the safety of the curriculum, if that makes sense, to kind yeah. of go, I've got to do this because this is what I do for the curriculum. And I think we at the museum are trying it within learning to think about how can we make that a little bit wider. And we're not there, we're not there yet. We're not there yeah. yet, but certainly, my plan when I come back after Christmas is to re-look really at my programme and have a real strong think about can we bring out those future-proof skills, if that, is that the right phrase, but something that sort of says this is not just a pretty nice subject where you kind of jump around and have a good time. There's actually some quite useful things that you yeah. get from this. You know, I think art teachers know it, but it, it's, it's, it's a tricky time for the arts at the moment in schools. But the reality is if you look at arts over the years, it's actually arts. If you look at, say, the Renaissance, the art has progressed social, political and yeah. equity throughout the ages <laughs> and for them to be knocked down in such a way. And it is also an issue in Australia. Similar sort of thing where people see the, the end mark of year 12 as the be all and end all of education, right, right. not necessarily the skills and the importance of things like the yeah. arts. Well, here we've got, thing, we've got the EBAC, which is the English Baccalaureate, which basically doesn't include any art subjects at all. Right. So by the time students take their options at the age of 14, there is no art to even take. It, mm. It's not there. The problem with this is then, of course, if you've got students that don't take it then, it then gets cut further up. You lose your A-level. You, you, you lose the other end yes. for the 17, 18-year-old. And then it kind of goes backwards, because if you've, if you've lost that, you then lose GCSE. And if you lose that, what's the point of teaching at Key Stage 3? So it's all kind of slightly heading in quite a negative direction. But you're right. And I also, you know, kind of been involved in this long enough to know that there are cycles. Yeah. You know, things go down, and then there's only really one way to go. They go back up again. So yeah. I guess it's a question of how far down do we go before we <laughs> before, before it go, turns go, go, yeah. Yeah. yeah, and it will, it will happen, yeah. it will. He said, fingers crossed, it, it <laughs> will happen, it will, yeah. Another interesting thing that I saw about your program is the connections with industry. So you mentioned before yeah. having directors in, but also what, <laughs> who else do you get in and what other industry players do you get in to help you with workshops? That's a real key one for the V&A actually, because it kind of goes back to the roots of the V&A, which was all about 
teaching people about the best in design, teaching people about the future. So, for example, we, we do something every year called Creative Quarter. It's every November and basically the whole of South Kensington, the whole of this area, which is a huge area, it's the Science Museum, History Museum, ourselves, um, the Albert Hall, basically we become a kind of careers advice centre. It's free and we will regularly get in 3,000 students over the day and it will include everybody from say someone like Paul Smith or representatives from Jaguar or the guys that made Paddington. Um, yes. We'll come and give lectures and talks about this is what we did, this is how we started our career. But we'll also have drop-in events of artists showing their work. We'll have portfolios of students that are kind of 18, 19, so not that far behind. So we try and give them the whole range. Because when you kind of dig down into what young people know about the creative industries, it's still relatively small. If you say, you know, mention 15 jobs, they'll, they'll struggle because they'll say actor, director, writer, and that'll be kind of it. So this is a way of saying there's a whole universe of things out there. Yeah. You know, there's a lot of those things. And again, because schools have kind of lost their careers advice and all that kind of thing, we're doing something that I think is quite unique and really needed. You know, These people do need to know about these things. And we know there's already a shortage in those kind of subjects, particularly the backstage technical things. There, there is already a shortage. And we make the most amazing films. So people from Pinewood came in. You know, Pinewood itself, that studio, is a world of jobs. There's everything there from the guys that make tables to the digital technology and everything in between. You know, and those jobs need filling yeah. by someone. Yeah. So that's just one example. But yeah, we're always very keen to signpost to the next thing. Just going back to the collection that's on display, and I'm fairly certain that this is only kind of the tip of the iceberg as yeah. to, to what you have in the collection. So there's everything from theatre to ballet to rock and pop. How extensive is the collection of, of artefacts from uh, the theatre and performance it, industry? We pretty much say for the 20th century and into our century, it's pretty much we've got everything. <laughs> um, it goes back, the, the collection was started in the um, early 1900s by a fantastic lady called Gabriel Entoven, fantastic kind of name that no one has anymore. And she was a huge fan of theatre, she started collecting things and she worked at the V&A, the main branch here, and she worked in the prints and drawings department. She collected all manner of stuff and you can imagine, over the years that collection grew so much that the museum had to kind of, we had to go away and have our own museum for 20 years because we couldn't get it all in. Um, after 20 years that didn't kind of work out for various reasons that nothing to do with the collection but it just wasn't a building that kind of worked. We came back here but what you see in the theatre galleries is I understand about 1% right. of the collection and it's something like 300 theatres a week. We'll send information just through you know, the posters, programmes, huge huge collection yeah yeah and we say we film we film live shows we don't film everything because as you can imagine there's no way we, could, we, we couldn't do that but yeah. we, we film a selection so we now have about 400 live shows on on, on video but it is yes you're right it is it's quite staggering it's dance it's rock and pop it's ballet it's the it's the um glastonbury rock festival that archive that belongs to the VNA. So it's just Fantastic. huge. Yeah. If it's live, we try and collect it, basically. So yeah, because there's all sorts of things. There's there's opera costumes. There's the costume from um, Adam Adam Ant yeah. in there, yeah. and, and Elton on, Elton John, and 
Bjorn must be cold in yeah. uh, <laughs> in Sweden because his, yeah. his jacket's in... Uh, and there's some lovely there. things that we've got that are not even on display. So we've got some of the original, the Sergeant Pepper jackets of the Beatles. There's a cool. lot of Beatles stuff. Beatles talcum powder, there's lots of it wow. in the original tins. Uh, lots of Elton John stuff. Adam and the Adam um, Stuart Goddard gave all of his collections to the V&A. We have Mick Jagger's jumpsuits. It's just, yeah, all manner of weird things. We just acquired a pair of Prince's shoes as right. well. Yeah, so if you go to the gallery now, you'll see them. Tiny little tiny shoes, and they are Prince's shoes. Okay, I'll have to go and, <laughs> go and have a look. Check so, them out at the end. Yeah. <laughs> so how do you curate that? So is it some somebody sees that and sees Prince's shoes or? Lady Gaga's meat dress, I, I, and go, we must have that. Yeah. That's an interesting question. I can kind of get out of the answering that question because I'm in the learning department, I'm not, <laughs> I'm not a curator. Um, but obviously, my understanding of that, that world is that there are a set of criteria by which, you know, do we collect a particular designer? Do we collect a particular type? Are we underrepresented in this area? So that, that there's usually a logic behind why it's been collected. Um, Generally, it has been, yeah, if you've performed in the UK, you're eligible to be collected. So it doesn't matter if you were born in Germany, Australia, whatever. So we have, for example, Dame Magna Everage's breakfast dress. And that, that's part of our collection. Why? Because she's performed at the, in, in the UK. So it's quite a, a wide definition. Yeah. But then we also have been gifted the, um, the British Film Institute's costumes. So all the film costumes they've had for decades are now part of the theatre collection. So it's kind of widening its remit. So that's quite a, quite a fluffy answer. <laughs> there's, there's various reasons why we would choose to collect something. And yeah. presumably various reasons why we would choose not to collect something. Yeah. So for example, I'm sure we, you know, we will often have people that will come into the archives and say, I've got some theatre programmes would you like them? And it's kind of like, that's great, but we've got quite a few. Yeah. Um, so there are some things we'll say, actually, that's great, but we, we don't need another 50,000 copies of Cats programs because we've got a few. <laughs> could get quite overwhelming. You could do have a, you could do an entire museum of just Cats programs if you, if you really <laughs> wanted. Yeah, 30 years of Cats programs. Mm. What's your favourite artifact whether it's well actually in the theatre what's what's your favourite artifact in the theatre area? It varies depending on what mood I'm in. I, I, can't, I suppose I do have to kind of say okay it's a bit of an obvious one but the, the Shakespeare first folio because it's one of those objects that you kind of know about from when you're really young and you know, kind of think about it and what it means and when you're standing next to it and you know that you're responsible for doing a tour and talking about it it kind of becomes really quite important mm. and what it represents so that, that's one that I will kind of come back to. But then I do like the rock and pop stuff. You know, I do like being able to stand next to George Harrison's jacket, you know, and kind of like, <laughs> or, yeah, yeah. But then there's really kind of weird things, like there's a little tiny cat mascot, because there's an old idea that cats are really, they're lucky, but they, they're bad luck if they run across the stage. So one performer always had a little stuffed cat that he took around with him, and that was his kind of mascot to ward off you know, evil spirits. But it, it's, it doesn't look particularly exciting. It's just a little yeah. fluffy cat. But I, I kind of like the fact that it's just a little fluffy cat. Yeah. <laughs> it's in the collections of the VLA. It's like one of those things, don't mention the Scottish play. Yes. Exactly. We're OK, because we're not doing it. We, we oh, can get away fair, with it. Fair we, yeah, we, yeah. We can say Macbeth. We can say Macbeth. <laughs> looks around. Looks, yeah, I think we're OK. Yes. We've survived. <laughs> so with your performance workshops, Often you could have characters that are being worked on that are quite emotionally challenging characters. How do you work with emotions with teenage students or, or working through 
that division of real emotion versus stage emotion? To be honest, it doesn't come up that often in the workshops that I do here or that I'm involved with because they tend to be design focused. They do come with devising. It kind of would come up more when I was drama teaching. But I think there's that thing about having, having a distancing role and making it very clear when you set things up. Drama teachers, I, mean, I think they're the one, they, they very often find out things about students that other, other teachers don't know because children will kind of give things away or you'll, you'll be in a situation and think, I wonder why so-and-so's saying that. It seems a bit of, yeah, and then the whole kind of policies of how you deal with that then kick in and you have safeguarding issues and all the rest of it. So it's not something that necessarily comes up in the workshops that we do here. But I, I, yeah, I know what you mean. It's an interesting question about that. Yeah, because I did a workshop once in Sydney and it was all about drawing out emotions. And yeah, yeah. by the end of the two days, it was quite exhausting. And it was, it was with a senior group. It wasn't with yeah. sort of younger students or anything like that. But yeah, it, it was quite interesting where we, we sort of had then had the debrief detox session afterwards, yeah, and yeah. Uh, which lifted the mood again. So it was yeah, it was yeah. a really interesting dynamic. Well, it's interesting if you're going to you know it's that thing about are you using role play to become a better performer or are you using it as a kind of therapy? Yeah. <laughs> and yeah. you know most of the time we're using it as getting better at performance. Absolutely, <laughs> not but as I mean, therapy. But it can be used, and it is used as therapy. But there's a slightly different kind of thing. And obviously, I, we use it quite a lot here in training. Mm. So, you know, I will do sessions with the visitor experience people and we basically use role play. Yeah. Um, I try and pretend it's not because people get very nervous. <laughs> I can't do role play, I can't do role play. And actually, you think, well, actually you can because it's what we do every day to an extent. But mm. you know, when you give it that name, people get a bit, they think they've got to get costume on and all the rest of it. So yes. uh, yeah. I, can, I, I sneak theatre and drama into what I do wherever I can, basically. And does that make it easier to engage the groups? I think it does. Yeah, I think it does. I think it's playful. And I do, you know, I think we sometimes have a, a bit of a, a problem here with the word play. We think play implies messing about, it's frivolous, it's not serious. But I think being playful is relaxing. And if you're relaxed, you're probably in a better state of mind to be learning things. I don't think you learn particularly well if you're feeling on edge, you're, you're feeling stressed. And I mm. think. It's, and it's a very natural thing. Children play roles. It's one of the most simplest things that we do. You know, I'm going to be a truck driver and I'm going to drive my car. And that's what we do. And it, it's, for some reason, at some point, it stops and we kind of think that's, that's childish. But it's not. It's, actually, it's a way of learning. It's, it's a way of actually trying things out and trying alternatives to, OK, I know it's this, but it could be that. And yeah, we could try that. That's, just, that's my sort of take on, on performance, basically. Yeah. And no, I agree that happy learner is an open learner yeah, and yeah. someone who is much easier to engage. Yeah. yeah, yeah. And I think, I think with being at the, the museum, you know, just taking students out of their normal classroom is actually very freeing as well. You know, we take them to the lecture theatre, which is it's quite a grand 300-seat lecture theatre, but it's also quite kind of comforting. And it means they're just being treated a little bit more as, as adults. It's, it's not school. And I think that is a very powerful thing as well. Just on that, that's probably an interesting, you have so many cool spaces within this museum and some of the work that I've done once you move, as you said, once you move the students out of that cla that traditional classroom space and into another space, it changes the dynamics yeah, yeah. and I guess you have so many spaces here that yeah, you can use. Yeah. yeah, and again, sometimes you have to think very carefully how you do that because for some students 
this can be quite a threatening museum be you know, because it is quite grand. You walk into the main entrance and we, we as adults go, wow. Students sometimes go, ooh, because it just seems a bit you know, imposing. So I think we as a department, we're very keen to not to break that down so they, they don't experience that, but to make them feel welcomed that you know, it's okay to come in and have that woo, and, but you're okay to be here. So yeah, sometimes the spaces, you just need to think carefully how you work with, with, with young people. But I also think what the spaces also do, subconsciously they say to young people, this is a place of art and we take it seriously and that, you know, we do think it's grand. And I think that elevates their view of, oh right, they're taking this quite seriously. So it sort of works it works as well as it doesn't work. Does that make sense? It has, it has kind of a negative and a positive. I think it kind of generally, generally works. Yeah, you, you've got that sort of overwhelm, like a cathedral, and it is, it is yeah. quite overwhelming the entrance. Yeah. But then yeah. you also have that notion: well, this is a special space, yeah. and there's That's certain right. things that you get to do, and you have a privilege in this yeah. in this special space. Yeah. 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 And of course, it, you know, again, we, we're kind of perceived to be sometimes, oh, it's, it's this kind of, kind of posh place, it's, you know. But it, it was set up for the working man to come in, you mm. know, the first museum in the world to have a cafe. So the working man could be fed first before he found out about art. Yep. First museum <laughs> to have um, gas lighting so they can come in the evening. Yeah. It's all about this is for you. You know, we did a, an exhibition we did a few years ago, I think that was the best title we've ever done. It was called All of This Belongs to You. And that's true. Yeah. This, I, you know, students think I own this, <laughs> or that I live here, and this is all my stuff. Uh, actually, it's not. It's actually yours. Or yeah. Your parents are paying for it. <laughs> we're paying for it. And when you start earning tax, you'll pay for it. So yeah, we're quite. That's quite a key thing to get across to people, I think. So just wrapping up, what do you see with the future of your programs for the V&A? In a, it is a rapidly changing world. Mm. How can you leverage that for your work with education with students? I think in terms of performance, I can certainly see, as I mentioned earlier, trying to really kind of pull out some, some real hard, if you can get hard evidence about these key skills to make it really clear why they're important. I don't think I make enough use of digital technology, and I think that's something that we're going to have to re... You know, we do... Digital technology is used in a lot of our programs. It's not massively used in performance, but you know, looking at things recently, Royal Shakespeare Company have got really into using, I suppose, you could, it's kind of three D avatars and amazing projections that are kind of holographic. And I kind of think that would be quite an interesting thing. But at the end of the day, I still think performance basically relies on the human being, and it relies on storytelling. And I don't think that's going to change. Actually, I don't think that's going to change. So my program will develop in line with the curriculum, but I think it will also develop in line with technology. And I haven't got any concrete plans to say, oh, in 15 years' time, it will be this. No, it's hard to know what the world will be in yeah. 15 years' time. But if I think back to what we were doing 15 years ago, it, it, is, it is quite different, yeah. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Watch this space. <laughs> Excellent. Well, thank you for sharing some of your story with us and the story of the V&A. It is just a remarkable museum. And thank you for your time this afternoon, Adrian. Thank you. That was Adrian Dix, Program Manager for Theatre and Performance for Schools at the V&A Museum in London. For more information on the V&A, including Shakespeare in a Suitcase, check out the links in the show notes. If you're enjoying the podcast, please rate us and leave a nice review. 
It helps others to find the podcast and helps me to review and improve the show as well. If you'd like to get in touch or want to let me know about an experiential education program you're running, please drop us a line through the website. Join us next week as we explore more great stories and ideas for experiential education.